I'm going to ask you now, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. In fact, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. And we have been looking at this book, this very difficult at times book, this very foreign book to us as Gentiles, because this book was written to a group of first century Jewish followers who had fallen in love with Jesus And along the way, as they were following and walking with Jesus, the pushback and the persecution that they experienced as followers of Jesus Christ was becoming too much to bear. And they were beginning to have second thoughts. Second thoughts, maybe even buyer's remorse. The majority of those around them, their family and friends, were pushing in so hard, they were questioning, who is this Jesus? And what makes Jesus so special that you would give up all that you know, all that you've been a part of, all of the culture, all of the customs, all of the traditions that Old Testament Judaism had? How great could this Jesus be that you would give up all that you once held dear and built your life upon? And the writer says Jesus is the greatest. And chapter after chapter, he's telling them why to leave and walk away from Jesus would be the most foolish thing anyone could ever do. Now, as he's been doing this, we struggle a little bit with translation because what he's been doing is he's been talking to a group of of Jewish individuals who knew all of the customs, all of the rituals, who had lived under it, who were experienced, and who had been even blessed by it who now were learning a new way, a new thing that centered itself on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what he's been saying, as we learned at the end of our passage last week, that the old way, the old way of doing things, the old religion, it was vanishing and fading away. It was becoming, the author said, obsolete. And this new way was coming. Now, right away, commentaries tell us that Jesus would have had an easy time being elevated amongst the prophets and even the patriarchs because we were talking man to man. What I mean by that is Jesus had done enough in his earthly ministry that it caused even the most God-fearing individuals who held to Judaism to take a step back and notice, think about it, even within the chief priest and the Pharisees' ranks, guys like Nicodemus were taking notice of Jesus. And so it wasn't hard for the author to say that, yeah, Jesus was in the realm and, and even superior than that of Abraham and that of Moses. But what he's going to begin to talk about is that which is untouchable. In chapter 9, he's going to address the issue of the tent, or what is it called, the tabernacle, which would then morph into what is the temple. And so this tent, which we're going to talk about, was this dwelling place where God resided. Now, in the wilderness time, the children of Israel would set this tent up and, uh, and create a space where God would join them and where they might meet God. It would later in Jerusalem become the temple of David and, and, and Solomon. And then later on, it would be called Herod's temple after it had been destroyed a couple different times and rebuilt. Now, what made this tabernacle, this tent, and later on the temple so important 
was that this is where the centerpiece of religion for the Jew was. This is where they came near to God. This is where they offered sacrifices to God. This is where they confessed their sins to God. This is where all of their ministry took place. Now, that's hard for us as evangelical Protestant Christians because the building isn't the main thing. Even though we're investing money and we love the building we're a part of because that building is a place of significance, it's a place where we gather, it's the home of this local group of believers, we don't have a building-centric mind. The closest we can get to it in our day and age is our friends and relatives who are Roman Catholic. That sacredness of the space, that, that's, that place that is set apart in such a way that nothing else happens in its midst. How ironic that right now we are worshiping and praising the name of Jesus in a place in many ways dedicated to the sports of volleyball and basketball. That would have never happened in the Jewish faith. They would have never set up any kind of sporting event in the tent or the tabernacle to do so would have surely brought you to your death. And so it's hard for us to understand how important and impressive this space was. The tabernacle was the centerpiece of everything. And no matter how great the Jewish people might have said, this Jesus is. Jesus wasn't better than the temple. Moses wasn't better than the tabernacle. No person, because it, it, it superseded all of that. And yet, what the author is going to tell us is, that tent, that tabernacle, that temple is growing obsolete and vanishing away. And the only thing that is going to stay and remain true is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this is what is happening. Now, this is hard for us, again, to wrap our minds around it. But what we're learning is, and this is how he's working through this, is that he is saying there is a new priest. His name is Jesus. He's brought forth a new covenant. That is the new covenant in his blood. And he has brought forth a new sanctuary that is not built with human hands, but is a heavenly sanctuary that is in the presence of Almighty God where Jesus resides and sits at the right hand of the Father. And so he's working through that. So he's the better priest, the great and final forever priest, and he has offered a new sacrifice for sin once and for all on the cross of Calvary where he has changed our stony hearts of, uh, of stone and put in fleshy hearts of flesh. He's changed us from the inside out. And now he's going to tell us how we serve and how we worship God in this new space called the sanctuary of God. So what do we want to do here? Let's look at three things this morning. And we're going to walk through them, and I, I want to encourage you to stick with me because the first two points, can I just say this, don't apply to you and I. In some ways, we've just opened up the Hebrews mailbox and we're reading their mail and it's not making sense to us. Who's Aunt Ida and who's, who's this place and where's that place? It makes no sense to us because we're reading other people's mail. But when we get to point three, 
my hope and prayers, it'll make all the sense in the world. So let's first of all look at the lay of the land. Write that down. We don't have the screens there. So the lay of the land. Let's get an understanding of what's transpiring and going on. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there were the lampstands and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, uh, in which there was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets, that is the Ten Commandments of the Covenant. Above it were cherubim, that's angels, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now let's stop there. Now right away we are told all of these different things. If you're taking notes, what he has done is he has given us two things. First of all, the floor floor plan, write that down, the floor plan of this tent. What does it look like? And then number two, the furnishings. The floor plan, keep saying plan, plan and the furnishings. If you want to follow along to help you, I've got in your uh, bulletin a, a illustration of that, all right? It was a pretty big space. It was a space that was set up so that the people of God could worship wherever they found themselves as they traveled about the wilderness. Now, what is he talking about? Well, first, we have the tent, This is that which the Levites carried around with them during their wilderness wanderings. And whenever they stopped somewhere, the priests would gather together, the tribe of Levi, and their job was to set up the tent. Kind of like when, and I don't mean this in a funny way, but how the circus comes to town, right? The first thing they do is they set up the big top. That's the first thing that happens. The poles go up, the canvas gets laid, because without that, you you don't have any ability to do what you need to do. And so they would set that thing up. That was the first thing that they did. And and it involved a great amount of time and attention. Now, it would tell us that this temporary structure was to house all of these different implements of worship necessary so that the sacrifices and rituals all prescribed by God could be done. And so just because they were traveling, God was resolute in the people of God doing what was regulated by him for them to follow. And so they had to do it. And so they said, right away, we'll set up this tent. And this tent is where we're going to be able to worship God and experience God in this way. To show you how important this tabernacle or tent was, the Bible dedicates, write this, this is so important, 50 chapters to the tabernacle to this tent. You think God wanted it to be a place of great importance? He dedicates 50 chapters. To put that in perspective, the creation of the world, all that is seen and unseen, God dedicates two chapters of the Bible. Does that put it in perspective? This is a big deal. And so they were to follow it. 
In fact, the majority of the time as we look at uh, the giving of the law, the majority of the time on Mount Sinai when Moses is meeting God is dedicated to all of the rules and regulations of what this temple was to look like, what it was to involve, and all of that. This is a big deal. And so we've got that. Now, we walk into this space, this tent, and we would first walk into what is called the main court of the sanctuary. It was a large, the outermost court. It was fenced in by the tabernacle itself, and it set itself apart from all the other things going on in the camp. And so this big curtain went around this entire place, and all it was dedicated for that space was the worship of God. Now in there, as you can see in the illustration, there's places for uh, uh, blessings and, and places for offerings to be made. There's places for the altar and the places for um, regular offerings to be done. That is the uh, animal sacrifices that would take place. We see things like a um, uh, within there a, uh, a bronze altar where offerings would be given, a bronze laver or a wash basin for the ritual washings that would take place. And so many of the people would be able to spend time in there. But then we go into what is called the holy place or the main tabernacle. It was situated behind a thick veil beyond uh, some of these other outer items. And the priests, all priests, were able to enter into that place. Now this is where the golden lampstand was, the table of showbread, uh, that is the bread of presence or the sacred bread. Now, all of these things were there, and these were for the priest to do their priestly duties. So you've got the outer spot, then you've got this inner place, and then inside of that inner place is what we called the Holy of Holies. It was the inner tabernacle, again, a small space behind a second veil in which rested some pretty important things. The Ark of the Covenant, which contained the original Ten Commandments, uh, the rod of Aaron, and a golden jar of manna from the wilderness. These are things, in essence, that God has touched, that God has handled, that God has blessed to be set apart as objects that would remind people that God was with them. Now, the only one who got to go there was the great high priest. He was the only one. Once a year, he would go in there. So they would set it up, and it was set there and left for the sacrifice that would take place on the Day of Atonement. Now, for all of us in Gentiles here in the 21st century, all of these different things are being thrown at us like we're in a game of Israelite dodgeball, right? All these things are, are there. Notice the things, the tent, the lampstand, the table, the consecrated bread, curtains, altars, incense, gold coverings, manna, budding staffs, and so on and so forth. And we're like, what in the world is all of that? And right away, it's easy for us to get bogged down there. And, and for some, they're like, yeah, let's, let's dig into these things. Let's, let's work through these things. But uh, the writer of Hebrews says, don't get enamored by these things. Don't get bogged down. If you really want to, you can. Exodus 25 through Exodus 40 walks through all of these things. But the writer says in verse 5, we're not going to put a lot of heavy emphasis on this. Why? Here's the answer. Because it's vanishing and being made obsolete and it's fading away. So why focus our attention and our time and focus on that? The author says this book is about Jesus. 
This book isn't about a bunch of furnishings. What Jesus is, is he's better than all of that. So why in the world would the author spend these couple verses to talk about it? Because he's getting the people to a proper place. What I mean by that is, if I was to talk to you, remember, he's talking to a group of people who know exactly what he's talking about. And he's wanting to move them from where they're at back to where they used to be. So, so I'm going to talk to my brothers and sisters in arms, the Cub fans in our room right now. And if I was to tell you, you remember the good old days of baseball in Chicago? You would walk in and you'd go into a famed stadium filled with green chairs, the ivy on the wall, the smell of hot dogs and cracker jacks in the air, the sound of the crack of the bat, the announcers and the chatter going on in the game. You baseball fans, you get taken to that place, right? And by the way, the Cubs lose 3-2 to two to the Cardinals. What he's doing is what I've just done for you. I've taken you to a place that you know. I've taken you to a place that you're well acquainted in. And the word pictures, you close your eyes and you're like, yeah, I'm there. I remember that. I can smell the incense. I can, I can see the sacrifices that are happening. I, I can see all of the paraphernalia and that, that reminded us of the holiness of God. I'm, I'm, I'm transfixed on those things. What he says is, now, okay, now that I've got you there, that's not the point. What it's to show you is, is that I'm going to point to you that Jesus is better than that. Now, that's a powerful thing because it's not like forget all that stuff. Let's not even bring it to memory. It's like he brings the competitor and he sizes up the competitor and he says, look at all the competitor has, a lot of gold and a lot of sights and smells and, and external things. But he says, in a moment, I'll tell you that Jesus is the champion. Now, once we get the lay of the land, we've got to then look at the practices of the past. Write that down. The practices of the past. And so what he does in verses 6 through 10 is he pivots from all the furnishings, the floor plan, the tent and tabernacle itself, and he gets to what's happening in that holy and sacred space. This is what he says. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional, if you want to underline that word, that's an important word, the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. All right. Now he pivots to what's happening in this place, and he's going to tell us Jesus is even better than all that was transpiring in this holy and righteous place, this centerpiece 
of worship. And I want you to notice a couple of things in these verses. First of all, the focus on everything external. All the things he speaks about are very earthy. From the objects that we've seen in the floor plan and the furnishings of the tabernacle, but also he says this stuff would impact food, drink, and washings. Food, drink, and washings are all very earthy things. They're external things. They could be touched, they could be feel, felt, they could be uh, smelled or, or tasted, and all these different things. They're tangible things. The biggest difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, listen very carefully, the Old focused in on things, the New Covenant was transfixed upon a person. Does that make sense? So this is how you know if you have allowed yourself into old religion instead of a right relationship with Jesus Christ, you're focused in on the things. Does that make sense? And we get focused in on things. Now, right away, it's easy to go to our, again, our Catholic family and friends and say, you guys got a lot of things, man. There's things all over the place. It's, it's all kinds of uh, paraphernalia going on. Wherever we look, and, and we look at our Orthodox friends, and you walk into an Orthodox church, and there is all kinds of stuff all over the place. Pictures, icons, all of these things, candles and, and incense. There's, there's a lot of movement. If you're ADD and looking for a good time, go to a Catholic and Orthodox church, because there's always something going on. A lot of movement happening. A lot of involvement, a lot of touching and feeling and smelling is taking place. Now, here's the problem. Amidst all of that, it is very easy for people to become enamored with the stuff. Does that make sense? And so we get enamored with the stuff, and we miss our Savior. Now, we do this in the evangelical Protestant church. Now I'm going to start stepping on some toes, okay? I don't like these newfangled songs. I remember old-time religion, and it didn't have a hip, bald guy on the stage here wailing on his guitar or, or, or that, that, we won't even talk about that guy in the cage. There's a reason why he's in the cage, banging and all of that. No, 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 where worship is found is in those songs that were in that book. That was, that's the only way I can worship. That's the only way I, I can do uh, what I need to. If, if there's not those hymns, and I'm not talking about preferences, I'm talking about that there's this sense, and, and I don't think you're here, uh, many of you are here because of that, but we gotta be so very careful. We can do it with Bible translations. The only Bible that we can study from is the King James Bible. We add these things, and these things keep us from the substance. Now, by the way, those things can be traded. We sing a hymn, and the young people say, oh, I can't sing those old junky hymns. They don't make any sense to me. They've got uh, Shakespearean English in them. They don't make any sense to me. And we can flip it, and we can do the very same thing. And in doing so, we miss the main thing. The main thing is, do those things point us to Jesus? And if they point us to Jesus, then we should embrace them because they are continually telling us something more about the one whom we love. 
be very careful about allowing externals to carry the day. Now, I'm going to get a phone call from someone and they're going to say, so externals mean nothing. No, they mean something. The tabernacle had its place. It pointed people to God. But the perversion was is that the tabernacle became the end all. And so be careful we don't create these gods out of these elements that are good and right for us to be a part of. Number two, notice the barriers. So it's all about externals, but notice the barriers. There's section upon section. I wrote down in my notes, there are a lot of do not enter signs in the tabernacle. Did you notice that? You can walk in, you know, so if you were a Jew, you could walk into the first big tent. If you were a Gentile, so the vast majority of us wouldn't even get into the tent. So do not enter Gentiles. Then you could go, if you were a priest, a part of the Levitical priesthood, you could go into the second tent. And so all of us who are not a part of that, but we are Jewish, we're in the first thing, we're feeling good about things, but then we want to go into the second tent, do not enter. And then there's this third one, this holy of holies. And there's a do not enter sign even for the priest because only one, once a year, gets to be a part of it. Do you see all of these barriers? These barriers were there for a purpose, to keep man from getting too close to God. That is so important. The Old Testament law was built as a fence around God from sinful people. Now that doesn't make any sense to us as a new covenant believer, but that's where they lived. We don't get too close to God. We don't experience intimacy with God. God is a transcendent God. God is a holy God. He is an all-consuming fire. We don't get close to that. It's going to be important here in a moment. Notice, not only are there barriers, but there's repetition. Notice all of the priests doing this work. Every time the tabernacle was set, they would set it up. They would get everything in its proper place. They would start doing sacrifices. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices, offering for his first and then offering blood for the unintentional sins of those around him. But notice it went on and on and on and on again. You would keep doing this over and 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 am are you getting somewhere with you people and over and over again and all that did i wrote down say it 10 times they'll stop you at 10 you didn't so all of that would listen get you back to first base your first step your sins have been covered but notice they weren't even the sins. They were the unintentional sins. That is your sinful blind spots. You didn't even know these sins were around, and those were the ones that the priest would go in and cover for a nation. Now, 
Once that was done, and he would walk out from the Holy of Holies into the most holy place, out to the temple of the, of the, or the, the space for the Jewish individuals, you would have this sense of relief that, whoo, all right, my sins have been taken care of. Only to leave that space and to get back on the sinful merry-go-round that you were a part of before. And you never got anywhere. And that's why the author says God had something better in store. So this left the worshiper wanting something more. It left them feeling like there was a part, there was something missing. I want you to know something. The law pointed people to Jesus because it left something untouched that only Jesus could address. The law addressed the outside, but it didn't address the inside. There's some commercials right now by the uh, Bounty Paper Towel Company. How many have seen these commercials that are going on? There's a couple of them. One is in a kitchen. They're both, in fact, in a kitchen. One is a little girl playing the part of a pirate, comes running in, and she's got a sword, and she stabs an unknowing father in the back, or maybe the backside. You don't see where he gets it. But he's holding a drink. And as he gets stabbed, the drink goes flying. You've seen it? How many? How many pagans watching television? Thank you. Okay, you might want to deal with that. And the drink goes. The spill takes place, and the response is, no. And they do it in real slow motion. No. Then there's the one where the kid is eating with chopsticks. You're there with me? He's eating some Chinese food with chopsticks. And he's putting uh, uh, this big pocket, I don't know what it is, I should have probably done some research to find out what it is he's holding, and it slips out of his hand, and the, hits the bowl, the bowl spills, and this one's got kind of a cleanup in, in mitts, because they got this uh, uh, bulldog at the end of it, and they're all going, no, and the dog's like, yes, and it's, it's really a great thing. It brings you to a place of great contentment and joy. Here's what's taking place. I truly believe this is what they're trying to get across. Spills are going to happen. But it's not just the external, it's the internal angst. That's the no. The feeling of, I just made a mess of mom's carpet. I just made a mess of mom's tablecloth. I, the regret, the remorse, all the internal turmoil that comes when we make a mistake. Listen, the Old Testament law was God's paper towel for a season. And it would wipe down. It was the quicker picker-upper, okay? You do these right things, it would clean up the mess, but people would leave and they would have the mess taken care of. You following me? But what they didn't have taken care of was the, oh no, the guilt, the remorse, the sorrow, the shame that came with that sin. It was taken care of. They were clean on the outside, but there was something left. And that brings us to where we're at and that is that Jesus was the only one who could cleanse the conscience. So we need to look at the cleansing of Christ. So now he's articulated all of this stuff about the old way. And he says, as great as the old way was, as much as you enjoyed the good old days, it kept you far from God, 
And it only dealt with externals. And so notice what he says. He says in verse 11, but when Christ appeared, that's an important but there, in, in contrast to what we just saw, Jesus appeared as the high priest. Notice of what? Help me out. The good things. Wait a minute. That tells us that the things before it, while they may have been good, the idea here is there's better things yet to come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he's speaking of heaven, that Jesus once and for all, remember the back and forth, the over and over that you got tired of me saying over and over again? He once and for all entered into this holy place, not by the means of blood of goats and calves. This is important. What happened in that main tent area? It was a butcher fest. This is guys with cleavers cutting uh, uh, parts of lambs and goats and rams and bulls. And there's a lot of blood taking place. This wasn't a pretty place. And he says, Jesus didn't go in with all of that. Jesus went in, notice what it says, by the means of his own blood, thus securing, underline this, an eternal redemption. Not a temporary one, but an eternal one. Eternal means forever, and eternal means complete, all-inclusive. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's the external, how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So notice this, at the end of verse uh, 14, our consciences are purified through Christ. Go back a couple verses to verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, underline that, perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So the whole thing is, how is Jesus greater than the sanctuary of the tent or the tabernacle? It is that Jesus is able to clean us from the inside out, where the tabernacle, the temple, could only clean the outside alone. It didn't address this conscience. Now, what is this conscience? Some think it's the little angel on your shoulder over here and the little devil on the shoulder over here and, and you're constantly going back and forth. Remember the cartoons and the shows, those little things would appear on the shoulders and you'd be like, hey, you know, do this. This is a good virtue. And the other side, no, do this. You'll have more fun. And some think that's the conscience. The conscience has been defined as the hu part of the human psyche that induces mental or emotional anguish when we violate our values. Now, what are our values? The Bible says he's written God's law on our hearts. So when we violate those laws, when we do things that we ought not to do, we have this feeling of anguish, of inner turmoil. Now, when we do things that are in conformity to God and his will and word, we have feelings of pleasure and well-being. There's a satisfaction that comes with it. The problem is the old law couldn't deal with that. So the conscience reminds us that we're not just material beings, but we're immaterial as well. The temple, it all pointed to the material. 
It all pointed to the external. So how is it that Jesus purifies us and cleanses us and gives us a a conscience that is clear? Number one, he purifies, write this down, he purifies us from our contamination. Now the old way was to address sin from an external place. But let's just be honest. The real problem with sin, and I want you to think about a sin that you really struggled with. The issue isn't so much the physical. Let's talk about sins of the tongue for a moment. Does your tongue hurt when you badmouth somebody? You feel a pain in your tongue? No. It's not an external issue. It's the heart. When you see somebody who you've spoken harshly to, it causes you and the individual pain. Not in their ears. They're not like, oh, you said this terrible thing, my ears hurt. You've, you've hurt my ears. What do they say? You've hurt my feelings. You've hurt my heart, my conscience. You, you've done something internally that, that's not easily taken away. That's why we use the phrase, sticks and stones may break your bones. But it's the names that really hurt us. What's with the external? Let's, let's take it a little deeper, and I do this with a bit of fear and trepidation. Lust isn't for certain regions of our body. There's a part to that. But if you've ever been a part of sexual sin, you know it isn't that part of the body that maybe was the instrument for uh, immorality, but it's what you carry. It's far more dangerous and difficult to get through what you carry on the inside. And what Jesus does is he cleans us from the outside in and the inside out. Fully and freely we are given new life in him, which means there's no more contamination. And then it moves to he delivers us from a guilty conscience. What I mean by that is he addresses the guilt, the shame, the remorse, the sorrow, the anguish that those sins have caused us to be held captive by the evil one. The devil never accuses you of your tongue. He goes to the heart, right? When you use your mouth in a a wrong way, He doesn't point at the tongue. The tongue is the mechanism. That's why Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth is just the the, uh, instrument that's being used. What really is connected, that really we struggle with, is the heart. Now, Now notice, the author says that the blood of animals has value, but how much more value does the blood of the one and only Son of God have to save? He saves us with an eternal redemption. Listen to me very, very carefully. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about your sin anymore because you have been made as white as snow. You have been saved to the uttermost, he says in chapter 8. All of it has been taken care of. 
all of it has been addressed. Now, what we got is we know that, but you know what dogs us as individuals? It's the guilty conscience. That's what the devil beats me up with. The devil says, how, how can you be a Christian? How can you be a pastor? You've got all this sin in your life. Man, if they only knew how sinful you were, Pastor Tim, then they would get there. And my conscience gets beat up. I begin to wonder, can I serve God? Can I worship God? And I come into this place and I'm like, I can't sing these songs. I can't experience God's forgiveness. But Jesus comes and he whispers in my ear, yeah, you're right. The devil is absolutely right. You are sinful to the core, but I'm holy to the core and my holiness covers your sin. And so child of God, don't live in guilt. Don't live in shame. Don't live in regret. Now that means we address it, we deal with it to the best of our ability. We, if we've wronged somebody in the past, we, we go and seek right so that we can live at peace with all people. But we need to recognize that it's in the past. My, one of my favorite pastors, Tony Evans, says that we need to put our past in the rearview mirror. Now it's there, but we've got the whole windshield ahead of us. The rearview mirror is just for us to be reminded of what's behind us. And so we don't live in the past. And some of you right now are living in the past. And you are ineffective for what God wants to do. Why? Because when we are delivered from a filthy conscience, a sinful conscience, to a holy one, notice, and I'll close with this, what he says. He says in verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That word serve there is the Greek word laturo, which means to worship and to serve. It's used interchangeably. And so what this enables us to do, since Christ is greater than our sin, you and I can worship and serve God without fear of reprisal or regret. I will tell you that if you can get this into your head and apply it to your heart, your service to God, your worship to God will be elevated in ways you've never experienced before. Because you will be like, I am so sinful and yet you are so holy and now this is what happens. The barriers are all gone. There's no more do not enters. There's welcome in. We enter in with a clean heart. It says in chapter 10, uh, verse uh, 19, notice, I don't want to take away that passage, but therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Amen? And so that delivers us so that we can sing and we can shout and we can proclaim that Jesus is this great high priest over the house of God forever and we get to enter into that most holy place and in that moment, listen to me my friends, we will experience grace and mercy in our time of need. And So if we can grab a hold of this, if those Jewish individuals could have grabbed a hold 
of this, they would have said, in light of Jesus, why do we need a tabernacle? Why do we need a tent? Why do we need a temple that is growing obsolete and vanishing away when we have Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? 